The Invictus Mind, Episode 31. Hello, this is Mike Corbell. Each and every person is a sovereign individual, born with a spark of divinity, with unique and unlimited potential. But every one of us will face unique challenges, obstacles, or roadblocks. There are systems in this world that may be built against our own best interests. Governments use force to coerce and compel us. Sometimes we build systems in our very own head. In each episode, we will look at these systems, these roadblocks, the things that prevent us from reaching our true potential. We will discuss how to break free and regain our sovereignty, how we can become the master of our fate and the captain of our soul. Well, hello everyone, this is your host, Mike Corbell. Whenever a new technology emerges, the market reacts in a particular way that is called a diffusion of innovations. People become aware of and rush to the new innovation in a way that has been studied and charted that is useful for marketing purposes. The diffusion, like any other statistical analysis, can be shown with a bell curve, listing innovators, early adopters, early majority, the late majority, and finally the laggards. While this isn't an exact science, it does help explain the time frame it takes for an innovation to become mainstream and conventionally used. We see this with almost every new technology. For example, the internet. When that first came out, there was a certain percentage of people who rushed to use it without even knowing the potential that it had. It wasn't until almost 20 years after it was released that people could not possibly imagine a world without it. The smartphone is another example. I remember when Apple first launched its iPhone. We saw people line up and stand for hours to make a purchase of a new device just because it was new, and the idea of being first was very appealing to them. Today, there are very few people who don't have a smartphone, but that took a while to accomplish. In late 2008, in response to a global financial crisis, a new technology emerged that at first only a few people understood and knew about. But its supporters will credit this technology as one of the most important innovations that came out in the last several hundred years, even more important than perhaps the internet itself. Of course, I'm talking about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. And though I'm quite sure that there isn't anybody listening to this show who hasn't heard of Bitcoin, the diffusion is of its commonality probably hasn't even reached a peak and is still in this early adopter or early majority phase on the bell curve. Today I'm going to be talking with an early adopter of Bitcoin. I will ask a lot of questions about the technology of its existence, but more importantly, its practical use. Since I can openly admit that I am an amateur of Bitcoin, the questions and objections people like me may have were all addressed quite well. I think you all might appreciate the conversation, whether you have been aware of and are familiar with Bitcoin, or are new to the technology. And after having this discussion, I personally think the technology is revolutionary and is here to stay. So as much information as you can get will be useful to each one of us. So let's get started. Hello, everyone. My guest is a former film student who had become interested in technology and system administration. After the 2008 financial crisis, his personal studies led him to take a deep interest in studying economics and financial systems. He soon discovered the true nature and power of the internet and networks like BitTorrent, eventually into cryptocurrencies. When he stumbled onto Bitcoin, his life changed forever. Since that time, he found himself enthralled by studying everything he was learning. Eventually, he started a podcast because he felt there was a need to translate everything he was reading into an audio format. His podcast, Bitcoin Audible, has over 400 readings and 30 interviews. He works in an advisor in the volatile Bitcoin market, and he boasts that he has read more about Bitcoin than anyone else you know. His name is Guy Swan.
How you doing today, guy? <laughs> Pretty good, man. How about you? <laughs> good, good. I've been wanting to talk to an expert in the Bitcoin cryptocurrency arena for a long time, and you seem like the perfect guy to, to have a conversation with. Well, I am, uh, I am happy to do that. That is, that is the thing that I do. So, <laughs> You know, I listened to your episode that you titled uh, Read 000, where you went over the white paper. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, the famous white paper, which uh, is really not that long, but uh, to the people who, who are uh, non-technological advised, like myself, mm -hmm. uh, you made it very easy to understand. And I can tell your excitement when you read that, that uh, this is truly <laughs> something that was uh, not only revolutionary, but uh, something that you really wanted to dive into big time. Yeah. Took me down the rabbit hole, man. It's crazy. I read it first time uh, nine years ago. Nine years ago now. Yeah. God, it's been a crazy ride. So like many people, I, I've uh, really only started working with Bitcoin a little bit. I don't know very mm -hmm. much about it, but uh, it is very intriguing to me. And because of uh, people like yourself who are so excited, I figured that this would be a, a, a great uh, podcast for people to listen to. Before we get into anything else, just tell me if you could in one sentence, why, why is Bitcoin so revolutionary to you? Um, because it's the greatest tool for... Um, self-defense of um, our, our value uh, that we've that potentially the individual has ever had literally like that that's it it's, it's one of the most powerful tools for self-defense in a political and global atmosphere that we've ever had i've heard it said that uh, cryptocurrency and, and bitcoin in general is probably the greatest innovation uh, for over a thousand years even since even more powerful than the internet itself i'd agree I'd agree. Um, I think the internet is, I think we've got another wave or another huge, um, I guess you could say phase of the internet coming. Um, and uh, it potentially will have a far greater effects on what the world actually looks like, how we actually organize and cooperate and how economic activity is secured. Um, and uh, then the internet has, um, in fact, there's actually been kind of a weird static uh, nature of borders and jurisdictions and political regimes around the world in the last 20 or 30 years that has almost been a little strange historically. Um, and uh, but I think I think Bitcoin is going to really mess that up because one of the most powerful tools for control and for establish establishing their uh, tax farms, <laughs> you know, their, their, their jurisdictions is the control over capital. It's, it's that it's that the, the government is that final arbiter as to whether or not you own something period. Um, and if you wish to get up and leave that jurisdiction, if you wish to go somewhere else in the world, you can't take your house. You can't take, if, if they don't want you to take it out of your bank, you can't. Like, there's always some central party of control in that, um, in, that, in that choice. It is never just the individuals. The government always has a say in it. And that is being taken away. That's being taken back. Um, that if I can, I can memorize 24 words, and I can put a billion dollars behind that 24 words, like in a, a, a cryptographic seed, um, it's actually done in, uh, it's made human readable by using in a combination of literally just 24 words. Um, and if you memorize them, you can attach a billion dollars worth of value to that. And you can walk naked across the border of any country in the world. And you still have that billion dollars. It exists everywhere in the world at the exact same time. And there is not a government, there is not a president, there is not a parliament, a legislature anywhere in the world that can take that from you without you explicitly giving them the keys. You are the final arbiter of what you own. And that is it. Yeah, that's a really powerful statement that you made there. You know, naturally, uh, libertarians are all excited about uh, Bitcoin technology. Uh, and <laughs> this isn't strictly a libertarian podcast, although most of my listeners will probably fall in that persuasion. Yeah. But uh, uh, since I discovered Bitcoin, probably uh, I was a late bloomer. Probably 2016 was the first time I actually heard about Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. uh, and Guy, a little bit about my background. I've been in financial services for uh, uh, about 12 years now. Okay. And so as a late yeah. bloomer to Bitcoin, uh, <laughs> you know, it's not that I've had an opposition to it. It's just it hasn't been in my wheelhouse for, for a long time. 
vast majority, vast majority of people found it in 2017, 2018. In fact, 2016 is a little early for like what I mostly bump into. Um, so, but yeah, yeah, that totally makes sense. <laughs> but the, it actually is becoming more and more popular, uh, not just among libertarians, but uh, among just people generally. Mm -hmm. And I think the biggest hangup that people have about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in general is that uh, they don't, they just don't understand the technology behind it. And I think that uh, it, it, it doesn't surprise me that people don't understand the technology. But then from my world, when you, when you talk about the, the financial services world, how many people actually understand fiat currency and how that whole thing works? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, no, that's like a, that, that's a huge part of the whole thing. Um, and there, there is this, there's this weird mental thing that we, we want to do with something new that like we have to understand how it works or we feel that it can't work if we don't understand it. But then something that has, um, it's kind of, kind of like the Lindy effect, uh, which is the effect that if something has existed for a certain amount of time, it is just kind of given um, among the minds of the people that it will continue to exist for potentially as long as it has already existed. So if something's been around for 20 years, you know, when the internet was around for five years, everybody's like, oh, well, the internet may or may not be here in 10 years. We don't really know. But after the internet has been here for 30 years, nobody looks at the future 50 years from now and doesn't see the internet. The internet's going to be more and more a part of our lives. Same with automobiles, same with all these things. But we don't know how any of this stuff works. Like, can you explain to me the, the, the handshake and a TCP IP connection? You know, like, like, can you give me those steps? No, almost nobody can. Um, but the internet does that all the time. Like every, every one of our devices is doing this thousands and thousands of times a day. Um, and we use it despite, I, I literally don't know, but a handful of people, uh, and they're all, you know, Bitcoiners who could explain that whole process to me that I speak to on a regular basis. Um, and it's simply the... You know, that's part of the economy. That's, that's just division of labor. Like it, most things are incredibly complex. I don't have to know how, to, how this big screen in front of me works in order to use it. I don't have to know how my internal combustion engine in the car works. I don't need to know the ins and outs or all the pieces to drive it around and make use of it and uh, give myself incredible mobility around the world that I didn't have before. Um, and I think in that same way, there you know, I'm happy to explain it to people if, if somebody wants to know. And I'll try my, you know, absolute to make it understandable, to, to you know, to make it uh, explainable or whatever, um, or relatable, I guess, to the, to the average person. But I don't think that's necessary. Um, you, it, it's, it's important to just realize where or how it can best be used. Um, and... And I think a lot of the time it's like just kind of dipping your toe in the water and getting started and just seeing how it behaves and what it is, um, is one of the best ways to just start learning about it. Um, you know, like get $5 worth or something. That's what I do is I usually like give somebody five bucks or something like that in Bitcoin or, um, in some particular wallet and let them just, you know, get their toes wet, you know, look around. Yeah, I like how you mentioned uh, the combustible engine. That was kind of the question I was going to ask. I don't need to know how my car works, but when it doesn't work, <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I, ha I have a friend who's a mechanic that I can just take it to. And it, as long as I understand the power behind the steering wheel that I can go where I want to go, uh, I would assume Bitcoin, like any other technology, would be the same thing. Right? You know, use it for the practical purposes for what is created and uh, let the experts, such as yourself, you know, <laughs> talk about all the technical details behind it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, and I think that's where a lot of the, uh, that's where I think that Lindy effect plays such an important role is that, um, the, I guess you could say the, the use case or the, uh, what's the word I'm losing the word, the, uh, operandus, uh, the, uh, the, what is it? Modi operandus. What is What is that? The, the, the dominant use case that, that value, that role that Bitcoin plays in society will simply uh -huh. be revealed, uh, with time. Um, and people will begin to realize how they can use it and it will be less and less of a concern of does it work because it will continue to prove itself and, you know, survive more and more attacks and continue to just operate and do what it does. Um, and as time goes on, people will just realize how powerful of a tool it is and 
I think adoption will be more a product of time than understanding, to be perfectly honest. What's interesting about Bitcoin is, like I said, I just discovered uh, the name Bitcoin back in 2017. And um, right now, what makes this market even more confusing, I just discovered there's over <laughs> 2,000 cryptocurrencies on the market out there. Yeah. I thought there was only a handful. I might have heard of Ethereum or like Litecoin or Dash or something like that. But a friend of mine said, no, there's 2,000 different types of cryptocurrencies out there. And uh, there's a lot of news that you can read about one or the other. And I, I think that's the, the general consensus as to which one of these is actually going to be um, the stable uh, currency that we use, you know, sometime down the road in the future. But I'm banking on Bitcoin because that is right now the most popular and it, the first one that came around, correct? Yes, yes. Um, and I think the big thing, like I'm, I'm very Bitcoin only. Swan Bitcoin, uh, I, I advise for uh, those guys and they're making an awesome product. Um, it, it's an onboarding like to Bitcoin um, a service and they are Bitcoin only. Like it's open source software. So I can copy and paste and make a new currency today. Like I, I could have one up in an hour. Um, I could, there's actually there are literally like websites and like GitHub pages where you can go to and somebody's made like a little script where you can be like, I'm going to change my block time from 10 minutes to five minutes. And uh, I'm going to uh, change just a couple of arbitrary parameters of the thing. And then boom, it spits me out a client and I can boot it up and I can have my own currency and I call I can call it guy coin. And uh, I can boast that it's got five times the transaction capacity of Bitcoin and it's going to be the future and blah, blah, blah. And realize that I am making a spreadsheet on the internet and then selling the points. That is why 2000 of those exist because it's completely free to copy and paste. And if people are ignorant of what the value case of this thing actually is, they could potentially just maybe even just as a hedge, you know, just as a speculation, you know, it makes sense that like, we don't really know. So why not dabble a little bit in all of these other things? Well, then somebody's just making millions of dollars for absolutely nothing. Um, and, but are there two internets? It's one protocol. And the benefit of the protocol is that everybody's speaking the same language. It's like a language. Like, yeah, it'd be great if you spoke Elvish and I spoke, um, you know, Chinese and somebody else spoke Korean. Like, okay, cool. But we can't do business together. The value of that protocol, the value of that language is that we are speaking the same one and therefore we can communicate. And money's 10 toward one. Money is, money is, uh, it's not just that that walled garden that something like a social media has where because more people have it, it's more valuable. It is that, but it's also the the walled garden of a language and the staying power and feedback loop of being able to speak the same language that other people with the most activity, uh, most economic activity are speaking. And then there's another element to it with money is that you can learn two languages. You can be on two social medias at the same time, but you can't keep value in two things at once. If you put it in B, it's because you sold A. And so the, the network effects and the, uh, the network effects of money are unbelievably powerful and they absolutely tend toward one. I think this is a transitional phase. I think the vast majority, if not all, of these altcoins are just, it's just a matter of time before they fall away. Um, and we are speaking one monetary language because that's the value of, that's how we get the division of labor. That's how we get a global economy is we all speak the same language and therefore the borders fall away and we can do business and cooperate with each other. Even though we may not have be under the same laws, we may not speak the same like speak the same language, like all these other cultural, religious, whatever differences, we can use the totem of uh, an independent money to do business. Um, and uh, that's, that's why I think it only makes most, the most sense to go with the most independent and the most sound of those monies. And that is hands down, in my opinion, Bitcoin. Yeah, I think that uh what you were saying, uh, it reminds me of, uh, you know, a, a current money system we have, the, the dollar, for example, people recognize that. And, and value is only something that is perceived in these days, right? I mean, I want to talk about mm -hmm. a little bit about the history of money and 
where it, where it comes from and, and, uh, and how it actually got into circulation. But you know, the perception of value is probably the most important driving factor of any kind mm-hmm. of monetary money, right? And you mentioned uh, the language, right? So although we don't understand the language, the technical details, but uh, most people understand mathematics. They understand the technologies out there. And uh, math is a universal language. So if people understand, well, this is a mathematical computation that uh, can be proven. You do very well, very good job at talking about the white paper and how it is a mathematical computation that can't be counterfeited. And, uh, you know, you said memorizing keys, all that stuff uh, creates a perceived value. But more than that, there actually is a, a labor factor in Bitcoin, correct? Uh, labor factor, you mean like in mining? Yeah, mining. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So what's interesting, uh, when I have a conversation about money, there, there was actually seven principles of, that distinguishes a money versus a currency, right? But I think three of the most important of those seven are whether it has a store of value, is a medium exchange, and is a unit of account, correct? As far uh, as those are the roles that money eventually plays. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but if you look at it, like go back historically, you kind of like chase Mises's regression theorem um, and uh, think about like where like salt and cattle and wheat, like all of these things that were used as media of exchange in the past, they were done so after that occurred after there was a massive universal liquid market for them. They became a store and use of value first. Um, they became valuable and widespread within the market. And then liquidity was so great that people found that, oh, I could just trade for some cattle. And if I have always, if I always have some cattle on hand, well, I can make you know, large exchanges of value very quickly. And that comes first. I think those are actually a process of um, those are actually stages in a maturation pro- process. So it's store of value and you know liquid asset first, and that takes a very very long time to mature. We're we're watching the monetization of a good that has not happened. Like we we haven't seen this in you know hundred two hundred years. Like it's been a very very long time since the market has any. We don't have any reference point for how this actually happens. Um, uh, and this is so- something that happens on such a large time scale when innovations like this come along. Um, so we'll have store of value and then it will be a, uh, a medium of exchange um, after that store of value phase basically starts to slow down or become uh, widespread enough that it's easily recognized. Um, and then lastly is a uh, unit of account or no, I guess medium of exchange would be the last. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe those. I'm curious. I'm curious. I can't. I can't. I can't think off the top of my head which one I would expect to come first. Um, but it requires a liquid market before anything, um, because it needs to be universally accepted or universally understood to have a value, um, and then you can start pricing and exchanging things with it. Well, what's interesting is right now Bitcoin's been around. It's been around eleven years, twelve years, right now. About to turn 12, January 3rd. Okay. So, yeah, so you mentioned that, that there's an unknown time frame as to when it's actually going to go through those stages and, and mm-hmm. be uh, uh, you know, completely uh, accepted as a, as a uh, medium of exchange. And uh, as I'm watching just the markets themselves, right, to, over the last couple of years, you, you can see that the extreme volatility in Bitcoin, right? Oh, yeah. And I think that uh, uh, maybe it was 2018, 2019, where it, you know, things spiked up dramatically. It was up to like 20,000 points, uh, $20,000. Uh, right at the end of 2017. Yeah. And then, you know, yeah. then it took a crash down. And so like a lot of people are skeptical about, you know, is this an investment? Well, I, I guess <laughs> it, it is an investment. What, what did you take? Do you think that Bitcoin is more of an investment or is it something that uh, uh, we should just, you know, dabble in a little bit or not? Uh, what's your thought process on that? Um, right now, uh, the best thing that anyone could do if they're getting interested in Bitcoin is to ignore the price. Um, the day-to-day swings are like, like one thing. One thing to recognize about the dollar and uh, government currencies or central bank currencies, more specifically, is that they work overtime to try to cover up risk and volatility. 
that's their that's essentially their job it creates a massive systemic risk and s- systemic imbalance which they don't recognize until this giant crash happens and then they, they blame it on everybody else um but you know regardless what they end up doing is smoothing out what should have been seasons where you know like uh activity fell a little bit or we got a little bit over leveraged and we needed to contract a little bit to keep things in balance and instead they just paper it over. They just print money to make sure that there are no swings in the market. Well, Bitcoin is illiquid in comparison to these other monies and currencies. Uh, And it also has no central coordinator. There is nobody to paper over when things happen in the market. But this is a feature because what it means is at the end of this, we get real prices. We get market prices that matter and market prices that tell us the reality of what is going on in the economy. Like we had a huge shock uh, that where it dropped 50% in like four days right during the the COVID crash. Um, And why was that? That was because there was a huge credit crisis or the huge credit crunch happening uh, and a, a liquidity crisis happening in the dollar. So people were having to sell liquid assets. You can sell and get money out of Bitcoin really quick. It's always running 24-7. Nobody shuts down that market. Um, So they were selling gold. They were selling Bitcoin. They were selling anything that they could get their hands on to basically prop up their, you know, leverage positions that were getting clobbered in the rest of the market. Um, But because of that, it reflected the reality of what people had to do to to keep those things alive. Bitcoin was giving us a real price. Now, it, it almost immediately just started climbing right back up to almost the exact same price. It was like 9,000 something and now it's 9,000 something. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, so it's a short term price swing and this happens all the time, both up and down, but it continuously swings back to this median. Ignore it. Like unless you are a day trader and you want that to be your full time job, this is a long term game. This is sound money and it's going to take 10, 20, 30 years, just like the internet, you know, 20 years ago, if somebody could buy a stock in the internet, uh, like I would have told them, you know, if, you know, some big company goes out of business or something explodes upward, just ignore it. In 20 or 30 years, the internet is going to be massive. We're going to be using it for everything. It's going to be on your phone, in your pocket. Um, and, and I truly think that that is the same time scale that we should think about Bitcoin and, uh, also the same potential ubiquity of its future. Um, and because of that, like that's uh, Swan Bitcoin. Swan Bitcoin is another great example. That's what they do. They're literally trying to teach long-term uh, uh, responsible investment of just buying like ten dollars every week. Just to just that you just you set up a set like I have. I buy fifty dollars every week, um, and uh, that's all I do. I just I I set it up. And I tell it to buy $50 every week. And then uh, every like three weeks, I think I've got it set to just withdraw to my own keys. So it's like in my Bitcoin wallet. And I just don't do anything. I just don't have, I just do that indefinitely. And I don't have to care what the price is. Um, and, you know, just like 10 years after discovery of oil, the market was completely immature. Uh, people had no idea even what to use it for or how best to use it. There wasn't any refineries. You know, it took like 20 years before we really turned it into like kerosene and the gasoline. Um, like there was a very long maturation process. But, you know, if I was investing in oil, I would just wait until the market matured. Um, and, and that's where I think we are in Bitcoin. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of different strategies when it comes to investing. And you mentioned day trading. That's what I was having a conversation with my wife about that. So, uh, I want to go over, you know, the pros and cons of, of, of the currency itself, uh, Bitcoin. But uh, also, I want to distinguish between, you mentioned having a wallet, a digital wallet, and then like a, um, a thing like Coinbase, where a lot of people, that's where actually I was introduced to putting a little money away in something like Coinbase. Is there a distinction? Is there a better place to uh, to do that? I would, I would shy people away from Coinbase. Uh, Coinbase um, is... Uh, they're a casino. Uh, they try to get people to invest in all of, they have a handful of, have a handful, they have a lot of projects up there that I think are just outright money grabs and scams. Um, and they kind of use people to, people's interest in Bitcoin to get them in the door. And they'd be like, oh, by the way, you could buy all these staking tokens and you can make 1% a month or something like that. And it is a recipe for getting wrecked. Um, 
I, I don't advise people to go to Coinbase anymore. I used to use them, but they, a bunch of decisions through the 2016 and 2017 situation just turned me off and they've got increasingly worse. Um, if you want a no nonsense way to, you know, dab, like get a little bit into Bitcoin, I would do Swan Bitcoin or Cash App. Um, uh, both of them, they're just, they're Bitcoin only and it's, it's, it's real simple interface. They don't try to get you to, to day trade or, uh, you know, invest in a whole bunch of ridiculous banana coin or whatever, <laughs> whatever the hell is the coin of the day. Um, yeah. And uh, so I would, I would definitely just recommend Swan Bitcoin and or uh, Cash App. Those are the two that I use. Okay, yeah, that's, uh, that was very uh, informative because, uh, like I said, when I was talking to my wife, I was thinking, okay, well, this thing is going up and down, and I don't know much about day trading. You know, I was a long-term mm-hmm. investment strategy uh, person, right? Buying a hold is, is you know, the strategy I usually recommend, unless you have fun money that you don't mind losing. Yeah. But uh, every time I put money into something like Coinbase, you know, they would charge me like two bucks. Yeah. And so I was like, that's, that's 2% right there. Uh, that I'm losing just from making a purchase. And so mm-hmm. my wife naturally, who is uh, less informed about I am, than I am in money. And she's like, that seems like a kind of a lot, a really expensive process. $2 every time you put money away. It's like, okay, well. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's, there's always some degree of fee. Uh, I think cash app has a slightly lower fee than Coinbase. Um, but with kind of the moves and the long-term prospect, I usually don't worry about the fees that much. But Swan Bitcoin, I think, has the lowest fees. I think they're like 70% lower than Coinbase. Um, like I have a 0.99% fee on the, the amount that I buy. Um, so it's, it's 1%, essentially. Um, uh, and uh, I think, I'm not sure if there's like a tier higher than that where you can get a little bit lower. I forget. Um, but... Yeah, if you're looking for if you're looking for lower fees, uh, Swan Bitcoin will definitely be Coinbase. So going back to when cryptocurrencies first came out, I think uh, and Tom Wood said this on his program the other day. I don't know if you caught that episode when he was talking to the gentleman uh, about Bitcoin itself. He oh, uh, VJ. Yes. Yeah, I have VJ on the show. We <laughs> talked a whole bunch. I have audio of his bullish case for Bitcoin. In fact, I'm, I'm probably going to be redoing that soon. Um, so if you ever want to listen to his uh, articles, like an hour and 10 minutes or something, it's, okay. it's, it's wonderful. But yeah, yeah, a great episode. And I love VJ. He's a good guy. What I think that uh, really stuck out to me was Tom Woods at the very beginning of that episode. He said that the problem with Bitcoin is that it needs better promoters. <laughs> and, I, and the reason why I say that is when I first learned about Bitcoin and, and cryptos, you hear all the negative publicity about uh, you know, how it can get into the, the black market. Now, as a libertarian, I'm not too afraid of the black market, but of course, you know, there's always uh, nefarious actors who are in that market who are doing legitimately bad things. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think a lot of people were scared about that at the very beginning because there's no central authority that can actually control the purchasing decisions of, of people. So I think the promotion just went, okay, well, this thing exists and it's got all these pluses, but here's the bad thing. It dabbles into all these areas that we don't really want to affiliate with. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's funny cause the internet actually went to the same thing um, is that it was seen as this toy. Um, you know, YouTube was just this joke. Everybody could just post videos. Like, how was that ever going to compete with anybody? Nobody was going to watch a bunch of free videos on YouTube. Um, it, you know, I was going to be used by criminals. It was just people going to be stealing information. And, you know, the, the reality of a tool is that anybody who can use it can use it. You know, like, like we, don't, we don't decide whether or not we're going to sell a tool yeah, a hammer can be used to murder somebody, but it is also very important to build a house. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And uh, Bitcoin is not for criminals, but just like criminals walk around, wear shoes, and they sign into their iPhones, and they you know, use their messaging apps and all this stuff, they're going to use Bitcoin. Like money is, money is a ubiquitous thing. Like everybody is going to use it. But what's funny about like the Silk Road and the dark web uh, early on is that it's actually one of the most profound um, demonstrations of Bitcoin's independence because that's, that's kind of the adversary you need to stand up against to prove that when you own a Bitcoin, you do in fact own independent value is 
that it can sustain a marketplace wholly independently, not, not just outside of the, like strictly of, you know, a government law or a specific jurisdiction's rule set, but that directly in opposition to it, Bitcoin is not the attack vector by which they can shut it down. It is that nowhere in that system lies a central point of control to, to stop people's money or to prevent trade. Um, and that was one of the most powerful demonstrations of exactly what Bitcoin was early on that I was like, okay, like, yes, the dark web, yeah, it's drugs. Even though it was like 95%, I actually did a lot of studying about the dark web back then. Um, uh, there were a couple of uh, journalists that like were just in it and talking to everybody and they'd interview vendors and stuff like that. Everybody's anonymous, you know, it's like, so you see, you get in these interviews, it's like, I've been on the dark web for, <laughs> you know, guys, uh, covering <laughs> up their voices. Um, right. but it was fascinating to hear about it. Um, there's actually an MIT study by uh, a handful of students, um, uh, that was, it was like 20 pages and they talked about how the reason the dark web survived is because of excellent customer service. The way it worked is that, um, people would put the money in escrow and if they didn't get the product that they ordered or they got like, uh, you know, something with like laced with something dangerous or they got scammed on the amount or whatever it is, the vendor didn't get the money. So vendors were just overly nice. It was like, it was like eBay, except like everybody was super extra personable because it was an adversarial network because you knew that the, the potential of really sucking or trying to scam somebody was a cop coming to your door. Um, and so it was, it was like, everybody was like, out, goes out of their way to please everybody. It's like, Oh, did you get, did you get all the weed that I sent you? Like, do you want me to give you a little bit extra? Like, like, let me give you a free sample of this other stuff that I have. Like everybody's like super polite and everything. And it was mostly just uh, a marijuana um, uh, for the most part, just cause that's the, that's the large market. But again, sure. it was just a, it was just an amazing demonstration of uh, that independence um, and that, you know, trade, even in the face of a powerful adversary like a government or, um, you know, a nation state or a legal jurisdiction, that trade continues. Um, but it, it eventually, that's kind of fallen away. Like, I mean, it's still there. Like, I don't think the dark web is going anywhere just in the same way that, you know, torrents aren't going anywhere. And, uh, you know, pornography on the Internet isn't going anywhere. Criminals aren't going to just stop being criminals tomorrow. Uh, but the vast majority of it has nothing to do with that now. Um, that was just kind of like a first use case. Um, and, you know, the very first payments online ever porn. Yeah, that doesn't <laughs> yeah. surprise me. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah. you know, that's kind of the history of technology. The, the people at the fringe and the people with the highest risk factor will always be the first ones to adopt it if, if it really does have that, um, if it really does change the game. Well, let me go over some of the things that I really found attractive about uh, cryptocurrencies. And since you are the Bitcoin expert, I guess I'll just continue using that name instead of uh, maybe on all cryptos, it's the same thing. <laughs> um, but uh, so what I really think is cool is that there's no third party uh, involvement. Transactions, you know, you hear the phrase peer to peer and most people don't understand what that means. But uh, when you talk about any kind of monetary transaction, you can think of like whether they're credit card transactions, you know, you have all your credit card vendors and you have things like PayPal. And there's always mm -hmm. a third party. And of course, just the government itself, right? So what I really like is the uh, interaction peer-to-peer -peer where I literally can go anywhere in the world and make a purchase and it's, it's a secure purchase. Mm -hmm. I love the fact that there's no regulation on it. I, maybe you can spend a minute talking about how something like that could not be regulated. Because one of the fears that I have is that uh, the government could come down all of a sudden and say, you're not allowed to use this anymore. Is, is that even possible that they could do that? I mean, sure, they could do that. They, they, could, they could say that. Um, but, you know, how many years have they been saying, you know, don't pirate stuff online? Um, what, what does that mean exactly and how effective is it? Um, uh, particularly as like Bitcoin as an independent asset and at this stage in its development, you, you know, when I'm sending a payment from my Bitcoin wallet or a lightning wallet, uh, which is just a, just a different type of Bitcoin wallet. Um, uh, when I'm, when I'm sending those payments, like there, there's, again, there's no third party. Like I'm not sending it 
through anyone. Nobody is deciding whether or not I can or cannot make that transaction. It is, I am the one that is sending the transaction uh, and it simply goes to whoever I send it to. And when I'm, it's, it's funny how many times like I've like done transactions with somebody and then found out, oh, oh, that person was in Lebanon. Um, oh, uh, like this wasn't even, this wasn't even in the US. This was, you know, uh, this person is in Japan right now. Um, or that's where this company, this company's in the Seychelles. I didn't even, had no idea. I thought this was, you know, New York company or something like that. Um, and in that same way, like, like they could put down capital controls, but they can't, <laughs> I don't know what, it, what would they do? Like, it doesn't, it doesn't really affect any my control over it. Like it doesn't, you know, make my key any less the only key that can unlock my coins. Um, it doesn't mean that there is any special barrier. Like if I still just scan an invoice from Japan and, and uh, sign that transaction, it's still just going to go to Japan. Like there is no stopping the protocol. Yes, you can make the market environment unfriendly, but I think that's temporary. You know, China's banned it a couple of times. India's tried to ban it. Um, and uh, specifically where it is exploding right now is in countries that have incredible capital controls. In fact, that's, it's, that is its modus operandi again, uh, is that when the government says you can't use anything but our money and then they destroy their money, People flock to Bitcoin, Lebanon, uh, Argentina, Venezuela, Zimbabwe, like these things. This is where we have the, or people with boots on the ground trying to push Bitcoin adoption and the volume in the, uh, the, the, the peer to peer markets, the, um, uh, like the lo local markets, kind of like local Bitcoins and, and these other like kind of decentralized to just vendor, like just connecting people sort of markets um, are exploding volumes are exploding because they don't have any other option. They have to find something that they can hold value in. And the only thing that can't be stopped or watched at every corner um, is, is Bitcoin. So yeah, that's, that's its role. Um, Bitcoin can't be banned. Um, it, it can, you know, people can frown upon it and, you know, try to charge you an extra tax or, uh, you know, make this exchange pay this extra fee or, you know, go through these regulations. But at the end of the day, they can't stop a Bitcoin transaction. And if you want to do business or you find someone who will buy and or sell it, there's nothing they can do to get in, that, in the way of that. Yeah, and one of the other things I liked about uh, Bitcoin, you mentioned it at the beginning of the show, you know, being able to walk naked and literally memorize 24 <laughs> words. Uh, you know, uh, what I found interesting in that conversation with uh, Tom and Vijay was he compared it to gold. Right, gold is notoriously hard to transport. Right, and so that's why they came out and the evolutionary came out with the you know, promissory notes and everything like that. But uh, yeah. you can literally carry billions of dollars anywhere in the world. And you know, when when, when the government gets too oppressive and and too restricted, you can just literally leave, and you still can transfer your wealth with you. I, I think that's yeah. amazing. One of the questions I wanted to address though was some of the. Uh, the negative aspects, or, or maybe they're maybe they're false negatives, but uh, you can help me clarify them. Okay. Uh, when it comes to something that's technology based, I'm going to throw out the most imaginative thing I can actually say when it comes to technology. What happens when technology just disappears? Like somebody has an EMP and all electronic things are no longer useful. What happens to your your value then? Um. Well, if it's if it doesn't get rid of the data, like see, Bitcoin is incredibly resilient in exactly that sort of way. Um, but it shuts down everything. Like we're so integrated into our technology, like everything is absolutely obliterated. Um, but what's funny is that uh, Bitcoiners are so paranoid about alternative networks and alternative means. Like there's a, um, a couple of companies that are doing uh, radio broadcasts of Bitcoin transmissions and transactions uh, syncing the blockchain. There's a satellite network that now has like over 90% of the world. And even without an internet, you can just point a dish up at the sky and you can sync uh, to the Bitcoin network. Um, uh, and that's made improvements. Like the, the most paranoid and prepared for exactly that sort of extreme kind of silly scenario are going to be Bitcoiners. <laughs> um, and that's one of the beauty of the network is that it is so distributed across hundreds of thousands of different computers that if you lost 90,000 of them, you can boot up another 90,000 computers and sync with the network in a day, a day and a half, and get right back. It can heal. 
it can heal, it can repair, it can change, it can move, it can adapt. Um, and that is what makes it so, I keep saying resilient, but really it's anti-fragile. It's the, the more that it is attacked, the more pressures it uh, uh, has to face, the stronger it is. Um, because it specifically finds a route around it and then is to some degree immunized from it. It's, 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 a, it's more like an organism. It's, 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 a, it's a network of thinking uh, units. Um, and in that way, it behaves like an organism. It responds and grows and adapts to all of its environmental stressors. Um, so even in that kind of crazy psychotic scenario, uh, Bitcoin would be one of the fewest, like one of the least worries in, in my in my estimation. Well, thanks for addressing that because, uh, you know, that's, I hear all kinds of weird objections to Bitcoin and that's probably the most extreme example, but uh, people like you, uh, like you mentioned, are already thinking of those worst case scenarios. So that kind of eliminates that objection. That's actually one really funny thing to show about like, uh, it's really popular to, um, uh, to have Faraday bags, um, Faraday bags that you keep your, your wallets in like your little hardware wallets. So like, this is safe. Like this is, this is like, I have some Bitcoin in here and uh, it's, if there's an EMP, that's a Faraday bag. Um, And it's something that like a lot of Bitcoin companies or whatever give out. Um, That one was uh, by uh, Casa Fera wallet and uh, key security company. Um, And they do exactly that. Like, it's just like, if there's an EMP one day, maybe let's just go ahead and just prepare. Let's make sure that we're not vulnerable to that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's nice. Well, some of the more uh, reasonable objections that I'm hearing is that the because it's brand new technology and people are just starting to get to know it. Uh, is go back to that uh, um, the medium exchange, right? Right now, it's not accepted at a lot of different vendors, right? So people mm-hmm. are going to object to that. So I guess that's going to take time. Uh, the volatility is, thing. and then I hear something about the transaction times. So it actually takes like if you wanted to make a transfer. Of Bitcoin, it can take several minutes to actually uh, move that money. Yes. yes. So, how do you overcome those objections? Okay. So, the the value of the protocol, the value of the system itself, is in its assurances. Meaning that when you make a transaction, the level of undeniable, irreversible guarantee that that transaction has gone through. Now, a lot of people think. The, the actual confirmation of the block, like the system is, you know, it, it pulls all these transactions together in these short little periods of time and it puts them in a block and then it, you know, tags them onto the end of this database and then it makes another one and it tags it on the end of the database, blah, blah, blah. And it, this just keeps going on indefinitely. Um, and this is the transaction history of Bitcoin. Well, in Bitcoin, it happens every 10 minutes. I can copy and paste it and make it happen every five minutes. But that does not mean that my transaction has the same level of security at five minutes as that one does at 10. Like the confirmation that it's the idea that it's confirmed is exactly regarding or is, is directly proportional to how much uh, mining power is securing the network, which means that my five minute guarantee, quote unquote, of my coin is absolutely meaningless. I could be running that network by myself for a year and then someone with a very powerful computer could come in and reverse the entire year's worth of transactions and all 20,000, 50,000 of those confirmations didn't mean jack. Like it's, you have no assurances whatsoever because I have a tiny crap, nothing copy coin. That's it. (laughs) Um, And that is the case. There's actually a website called, uh, it's not Coin Wars. Oh man, I'm going to forget. There, there's, a, there's a website that, um, how many comps? That's what it is. How many comps, C-O-N-F-S. Um, and it shows the comparative level of security that you get over time with any system. So uh, you may have some banana coin or whatever that supposedly confirms after 20 seconds, but then you'll go to howmanycomps.com and you'll realize that even after 20 days, it only takes $50,000 worth of value to attack the network. Whereas Bitcoin will give you half a million dollars worth of protection in under an hour. Um, and that's the difference is that, okay, yeah, it takes 10 minutes, but what you were getting in that 10 minutes 
is a thousand times as powerful as what you were getting in 20 seconds on this other coin. Um, and and it's, it's settlement assurances. But just in that, this is a data thing, right? This is, a, this is, this is an information protocol. There are ways to increase those assurances and like the lightning network that I just talked about, the lightning wallet, that's exactly one of those things that there's a new layer on top of Bitcoin that is specifically a transactional layer. The best way to think about Bitcoin is the ownership layer. It is the court that ultimately decides who owns what. But with that, you can write contracts. You can basically like write a live contract where I can make many different transactions within this and then settle the final result onto Bitcoin. Um, and that's what, uh, think of it like a bar tab, except that you're not having to trust the bar. Um, but you know, when you go to a bar, you only swipe the card once, right? But you might buy a drink like 20 times while you're, well, 20, you got wasted. Um, you <laughs> might buy a drink like five times while you're right. at the bar. But yeah. they only do one transaction. The Lightning Network is kind of a way to do that in a completely trustless fashion. Um, uh, where, uh, you know, the bar can't just take all your money. <laughs> you have to sign it over. Right. Um, and in doing that, like I've done probably 30 transactions or so this month um, with uh, my Lightning Wallet. I use one called Breeze, which is a, I'm a big fan of that one, um, even though there's a handful of other ones. But I've done like 30 transactions, 40 transactions. I don't know. I just did one, this, this, this coffee that I did, I, I spent Lightning um, with it. Um, and uh, not one of those was quote unquote on the Bitcoin chain. So they were instant. I didn't have to, I don't have to wait for like 10 minute confirmations. Um, okay. I don't have to pay a base layer fee. I pay a higher up layer. So just kind of like HTTP is to the internet or the web, the web or um, uh, you know, all, the, all the higher layer protocols. TCP IP is that base layer. Well, then we put protocol on top of protocol on top of protocol to solve all of our other problems. And payments is just a down the road problem. Um, uh, the, the unbelievable value of Bitcoin is in incomparable jurisdictionless global assurances that you are the absolute end all owner of those coins and that you can send them to whoever you want or however you want. And there's nobody in the world that can stand in the way of that. Um, and you have a digital scarce token. That is a groundbreaking technological breakthrough. It was, it's something referred to as the Byzantine general's problem. Actually, it was, it was, it's taught in computer science. Like as a computer science major, you were taught this as an impossible problem in computer science that can't be overcome. Satoshi mm -hmm. solved this. Um, and that is the breakthrough of Bitcoin. Uh, we will figure out like payments are just something that we develop on top of it. Um, and I think merchant adoption is also way down the road. Um, we kind of got overzealous about that, like back in 2013, 14, and 15. Is that like, oh, we're going to have all the merchants adopt this. And then you kind of really start looking at how the protocol works. And it's not great for in-person retail payments at the base layer. It just never really made sense. Um, and it didn't scale. You know, Bitcoin does as many transactions as the Fedwire system. So it's like run, it's sending a wire to someone else around the globe, you know. Um, and it has a hundred times the assurances of sending a fed, of sending something over the fed wire. So it's kind of like buying groceries, uh, by driving your tank to the grocery store. It's so okay. unbelievably secure. It's just overkill. Um, uh, and that's why you build layers on top of it and they can give you the benefit of incredibly fast transactions of doing 10,000 transactions and just settling once on the Bitcoin blockchain, which will give you incredibly low fees as opposed to a dollar fee or $2 fees that the Bitcoin layer, uh, the underlying layer might do um, and that sort of thing. It's just, it's just a long maturation process of, of the technology. You know, there was no way we were doing video streaming in 1998. But we saw on the internet that that, was, that had the potential. But it wasn't until 2000, what, 11, 12, that it really started to come into its home. You know, it took another 15 years. Um, so, Yeah, I have uh, no doubt that the technology will catch up to, to make the market uh, do what it wants to do. Uh, one of the other uh, objections that I have heard about Bitcoin was that it was a non-refundable type of uh, currency. In other words, if you made a mistake, if you make a mistake and you, you know, let's say you want to buy something for $10, but all, all of a sudden you put an extra zero in there, you know, you can get that money back. Can you do that with something like Bitcoin? In a higher layer. 
um, you can create, there's somebody, I think it was Tour Demeester, if I'm not mistaken. We had a really good analogy for this. Bitcoin is, like that is the feature of Bitcoin, actually. Um, that's something that Bitcoin has that nobody else has, is that when you sign that over, I mean, that's how you know when you receive Bitcoin, it's yours, end of story. Um, because there isn't, you can't call the president and be like, can you reverse this transaction for me, please? Um, yeah. <laughs> like they, there's nothing they can do um, because the rules of that system, the cryptography, if you signed that transaction, you exposed that key to exactly this data and that is it. The system will now take that and run with it. That is, that is the ultimate arbiter of ownership, end of story. Um, so if you do that, yes, it is irreversible, um, but it's also programmable. Um, uh, the, the, the analogy that I loved that, uh, like I said, I think it was Tour de Meester, it's T-U-U-R. Um, if you uh, uh, look him up on uh, Twitter, he's an amazing guy, so many great writings uh, and pieces. I've read like, I don't know, five or six of his on the show. Um, Bitcoin Refer Reformation may be one of my favorites. Um, but uh, he said that it's such a hard money that it's actually brittle. The, the, the ownership is so absolutely certain and unquestioning that you can accidentally delete a key and it's gone forever. You can, you can you know, reformat your hard drive without remembering that that was the only place that you had your Bitcoin key and there's nothing anybody can do about it. Um, that you can accidentally send the transaction to the wrong person and it's just gone. Unless that person is nice enough to send it back to you, that's, that's where it is from here on out. Um, and that, that makes it, it's such a hard independent money that it becomes brittle. But because it's programmable, you can also make it malleable. So you can get that degree of flexibility. And that's where stuff, stuff like multi-sig comes in. It, one, of the, one of the pioneers of this was actually the darknet markets, that you have multi-signature, that I send you, I basically send money to a two of three account um, where it's you, me, and a third party, a, another arbiter. And uh, unless I get the product that I purchased, uh, the arbiter will not sign it over to you and it will come back to me after. So I have signed it to move it in your direction, to move it potentially for you to redeem, but we can still get it, I can still get it back if something goes wrong. Um, and there's actually really clever ways to do this independently of a third party, of actually making it so every, either both sides has to put up like $20 or $50 in the agreement, that if the agreement doesn't go through cooperatively, both people burn that $50 that it just vanishes. Um, so it's like setting a $50, on bi $50 uh, bill on fire. Um, and in doing so, it means that we will, like we're highly incentivized to come to an agreement and settle on a cooperative close because we, all, we both have skin in the game. We both have stake on whether or not, like they can't just steal my money and then run away. They're gonna burn $50 at the same time. Um, so. Uh, there's a whole array of things. Lightning Network is another really interesting example of uh, payments that have a time lock um, and a, uh, uh, a certain set of clauses uh, that, because it's contractual, you can, you can write all of these special instructions into the money. It's like I can say that you're going to get this dollar and like imagine if I could just write this on a gold, a gold bar. I could just be like, you're going to get this gold bar in two hours unless something goes wrong and uh, I, uh, I invoke, uh, you know, a insurance policy essentially on this, on this gold bar. And then I hand it to you. And then you know it's not quite yours until two hours go by. And maybe that was with a bet on a, a you know, a boxing match. Maybe it was with a... Um, uh, you, you know, delivering me goods on some sort of a marketplace. Uh, and and that's, where, that's where that comes in. And uh, also in, you know, just having multiple keys, like any large amount of value that I have in Bitcoin now, um, anything over $500 or whatever, I'm putting behind multiple keys. Um, like I don't have any really single point of failure in my ownership. And that's because I have lost keys in the past. Back in 2012, you know, back in those days, I didn't have that option. Uh, it was so immature. I was doing everything over the command line. Like it was awful. Um, it, 
it was it is night and day between the the products and services and stuff today than it was then. It was it, they don't look even remotely like the same world. Um, but because of that, if I lose my phone, I have a lot of Bitcoin on my phone. But if I lose it, I haven't lost any of my Bitcoin. Um, if I lose one of my hardware wallets, I haven't lost any of my Bitcoin. Um, if my computer goes down, I haven't lost any of my Bitcoin. Even though all of those places hold a lot of Bitcoin, I can split it up over multiple places where the ownership is behind both my hardware wallet, my phone, and my computer. And as long as I have two of them, I'm good to go. Um, so again, there's a lot of ways to mitigate this. And this is a huge part of the maturation of the technology that we figure out all of the clever tricks we can do to make it more malleable and less brittle. Um, but that's just a, another product of time and work. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's very reassuring because I, I can just see the, the problems in the future. I mean, somebody like you who already, you know, already understand the technology, making mistakes with early technology, you know, yeah. I'm just thinking of the, uh, you know, my grandma trying to, to use Bitcoin and all of a sudden <laughs> she lost her life savings because she, she doesn't understand any of it. But yeah. uh, that's going to take a long time and uh, you know, much more promotion. I, I do think that there is a future with Bitcoin. I, um, you know, I'm, I'm starting to dabble with it. Uh, you know, I appreciate this conversation because uh, it gives me more confidence that, uh, uh, you know, some of these objections that are real objections can be overcome and that there are people like you thinking about them. Yeah, there's a, a decent analogy, um, particularly back in like 2013. Uh, this was incredibly pertinent. You know, when the internet first came out and everybody was talking about like, oh, we're going to use email and it's going to be great. Um, there weren't email services. Like you set up your own email server. You would, you would, you would manually log in with a 56K modem, which was an insane process. Um, and uh, before, before those were like literally... Um, uh, uh, I, I guess you could say universalized, I guess you could say. I'm not sure if that's quite the word, but I think you get what I mean. Um, and then you generally, you, you literally, literally had to boot up a server. You had to, you had to create a server by command line on your computer and then, um, set up your, get your SMTP and, uh, uh, like addresses and stuff for your email server and set up your email address. Like you were running your own, your whole instance of the email protocol. Um, and you know, if you asked anybody, would they do that? Is your grandma going to have an email address? Absolutely not. That sounds insane. Nobody's going to do that. Right. Um, but you know, five or six years later, Yahoo, uh, 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 Alta Vista, like all these, like everybody hotmail, everybody had like email addresses were exploding and there were services that made it incredibly simple. Um, and it got simpler and simpler as time went on. Um, I actually think we're there with the technology in Bitcoin already. It's just a matter of finding it and adopting it. I have been using so many things, uh, like a good example, I just mentioned earlier, Casa Wallet. They're a key management um, company uh, and their base wallet is a, uh, has a two of three multi-sig where like as long as you have two of any three sets of keys, um, you can always get your money back. And the, the key that you actually just have in your mobile wallet is actually split up over multiple different servers. They keep half of it encrypted on their servers. And then the other half is kept on your iCloud, your Apple encrypted server. Um, and it's encrypted independently. So Apple can't see any of the data unencrypted and neither can Casa. It's done from your device. Uh, but that means that if I lost my phone, even the one that's supposedly a single key, if I lost my phone, I could still just get a new phone boot up the wallet, um, log into my Apple ID, log into my Casa, and boom, my wallet's right back where I was. Um, so there's a lot of services and tools like that. It's so easy now. It's really just a matter of familiarity. You know, it's like, you know, when Yahoo was first coming around and Google was first coming around, you people didn't say, oh, just go Google it. They didn't know about Google. They didn't know what it yeah. meant to have a search engine, you know? Um, and I think... I think this past year has been massive for exactly that kind of improvement in the ecosystem. And I think the next two years are going to be, are going to, we're going to see that curve where people start to realize it and adopt it and really figure out how to use these tools. Awesome. Well, Guy, uh, why don't you take a second to uh, plug whatever you have and people can learn more about uh, Bitcoin. Cause I, I do think that it, it is a revolutionary technology and it's going to change the world but uh, there's much to be learned about it. We talked oh, about yeah. how it's, uh, we don't have to understand the technology, but we, we have to understand that uh, 
there are people behind it like you who uh, know what they're talking about. So, you know, give me what you got. All right. Well, I'm, I'm going to be here indefinitely talking and learning about this thing. I'm on top of everything that I can possibly be on top of. Um, I've got every, I play and mess with and talk about and explain every app and tool that's out there. Uh, and you can find almost all of that on my show, uh, Bitcoin Audible. Uh, and that's at bitcoinaudible.com or at bitcoinaudible uh, tag on Twitter. I, my personal account, um, is at the crypto economy, uh, and the cryptoeconomy.com is also a place that you can get to any of those things. Um, and, uh, you know, search crypto economy on, I guess, YouTube, Instagram, any of those, any of those places you can find me, uh, and feel free to hit me up. Um, it's easier on the crypto economy, uh, uh, tag on Twitter. Uh, shoot me a DM. Got any questions? You try and set something up. Um, I got a telegram group where we have like a big gang uh, get together and we talk about everybody asks questions and stuff. I mean, like we're, it's just a community of people helping everyone out, figure out all the tools, um, where to go for what service and all this stuff. And I've been in this for, like I said, nine years, almost 10 years now, which is pretty crazy. It's insane to think it's been, it's consumed my thinking for that long. Um, <laughs> But uh, I'm, I'm always available. I'm, I'm happy to help. I love debating. I love explaining. So that's, that's what I do. Bitcoin Audible will direct you to all of those other places if you need it. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Guy. I appreciate your time. Absolutely, man. Been, been fun. Great. I enjoy yeah. it. Thank you. Have a good day. You too, man. Later. I want to thank Guy Swan for this great conversation. Thanks also to all you great listeners out there. If this information is valuable to you and you can benefit from it, please like it and share the content. I will soon be developing new content and possibly setting up a Patreon so that good folks like you can help me continue finding interesting people and sharing this valuable information. Well, that's it. Come back next week for another episode. Until then, be smart, be productive, and stay free. Stay free.